We start today, though, with BC's vaccine passport, proof of vaccination now required to enter a pub, restaurant, bar. Uh, Let's talk about how it's going so far and how some places are choosing now to hire private security to help them through this. Let's talk to Robin Chakrabarti now, president and chief operating officer of SecuraGuard. Uh, one of the largest uh, security guard companies in the country. Robin, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me. Are you getting lots of requests from bars, restaurants, pubs, looking for security guards to help them through with this uh, vaccine passport system we have now? Uh, we are, and, and let me talk about that. And before I do, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind just giving out a shout-out of thanks to all the security guards. We call them security professionals across the country who have gone through this pandemic with heart dedication and perseverance and have really stepped up and are the unsung heroes on the front lines who have been out there every day keeping our communities and ourselves safe so i really wanted to make sure they're appreciated for what they do every day and so we are getting more inquiries uh all the time we've been working with existing clients and we've been working with uh, prospective clients and our bc restaurant association has shown leadership in this area and this is our you know this is a hard thing to manage it's complex Things are changing every day, and we really want to ensure that everybody feels safe in their communities and as they enter these facilities. So we're working with many clients on trying to how to best execute on this, you know, the vaccine ambassador program, as we call it. Okay, so if a restaurant or a bar comes to SecureGuard and they say, look, we need some help, we want to get one of your vaccine uh, ambassadors Ambassadors. employed at our place, like what would they do? What would their job be? So we're, we're going to customize it and be flexible. Um, we obviously have had experience through the pandemic. We're, you know, as, as much as security professionals are guards, they're really client service ambassadors for a large part right across the country, include in our, our company and others. And so it's really having that customer service experience. As a restaurant owner, people are concerned about their guest experience. So you want it to be seamless. You want it to have a hospitality aspect to it and you want to make sure it fits in with the brand so each case will be different and we want to work with our clients to make sure that they're able to implement something that makes sense for their guests but also add that level of um, comfort for everyone involved as these issues and for the most part canadians 99 percent of everyone understands what's going on understands the need for the vaccine verification and are going to be fine but everyone deals right. with anxiety and stress in a different way so there's going to be the occasional outburst and we'll be there to help calm the situation down. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I'm sure there will be some outbursts, and we're already hearing about some. I, I imagine your people are trained to deal with that, right? Like, what happens if you get a customer who comes in who's not happy about being asked to show a vaccine card, starts acting out or getting violent or making threats? What do your people do? Well, all of our security professionals are trained in a blend of safety, security, and customer service. So each situation is different. But of course, de-escalation is very important. Understanding that, you know, one of our values is empathy. We also believe in having a listening mindset. So people do need to be heard. And then you've also got it. You're in a place of business. You don't want the situation to escalate. You don't want emotions to get out of control. So in any situation like that, the goal is to de-escalate, try to remove people from the situation that they're, you know, together and then cooperate and listen to them and then move them on. But again, we believe that's going to be a small percentage of the population. But of course, they do get the media coverage when those things happen. Yeah, yeah. Are you hiring over at SecureGuard? Do you need need people? 
we always need great people. You know, this is a uh, business that is, is growing. And uh, right now there's a demand for these uh, vaccine ambassador programs. So we have we have a lot of amazing security professionals within our company. And we're also looking to add to our team. So would love uh, help if people are interested in this role, which is an important role. And, you know, our mission is to make people feel safe. And what our security professionals do every day is important. So we would love to get more people into our pipeline and have them join our organization. Yeah, like I'm I'm wondering if there's a shortage right now. I mean, are you able to meet the demands, like the calls that are coming in? Uh, It's a uh, like every employer right now. uh, We're in an interesting stage in the economy and coming out of the pandemic. So, uh it's it's not as easy as other times during the cycles but uh, so yeah. we're we're getting through it and we're making sure that we get the best candidates for our clients because at the end of the day this is about exceeding our clients expectations but yeah we we definitely want to have people more interested in the security industry and it's a great profession to get into and presents a lot of career opportunities but everybody like in every organization we all start at the front yeah it's a good paying job how much do you guys pay <laughs> it, it 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 varies and um it's uh, for what, you know, I'm inspired every day by what our teams do on the front lines. And I would say for what they do, the, uh, the, the paid varies from site to site. And uh, it's amazing oh. what our security professionals do. So it does really vary depending on the job. There's no one specific rate. Depends on yeah. the client. It depends on the circumstances and the position. Right. Do you hire men and women? We hire everyone. We're, I like okay. to say we're organically diverse. This industry is built off of... Uh, People who want to make a difference, and of course, we have a high percentage of new Canadians, um, and yeah. so we hire across the chain. The, the, the typical security professional is not a bouncer type person. Security mm-hmm. professional is someone who cares about their community, and again, is really much about a client service uh, perspective with safety and security tied around that. Okay, busy days for you, Robin. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. I love the Tom Sawyer at the beginning of your show. Okay, th- thank you. I'm, well, I'm a Rush fan. What can I do? What can I tell you? Robin Chakrabarty, there, president of SecuraGuard. Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now, executive director of Able BC. It's the group that represents bars and pubs in BC. Jeff, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure. Are you hearing about bars? A lot of bars and pubs who are turning to companies like SecuraGuard to hire security people. It's not a lot, but it is certainly happening, and uh, we, we appreciate the support of companies like that as we're trying to navigate this. For the most part, we have found British Columbians are taking these vaccine card requirements in stride, and uh, we do have a vocal minority out there, though, that, that think the appropriate yeah. place to, to express their frustration or, or you know, disapproval of this is, is at a, you know, a young staff member working on the front of the the line, right? And that's that's just not acceptable. So in some cases where we, we've seen some of that, um, yeah, the places of higher additional security to, just to keep their staff safe. Yeah, so we're in, today is day four of the vaccine card rollout. What kind of reports have you received, Jeff, from pubs and bars in BC, how, how this is working so far? You heard of any reports of trouble? Yeah, we've heard some good stuff, right? I mean, it's interesting. We've had people come from even from other provinces and say, it feels really great to be able to dine or drink in knowing that everybody in here is vaccinated. So that, that's really good news. Uh, we have had some folks come in and say, I'm not showing you my card or this is my you know, confidential information or something. And it, it, it's, it's not. We're just looking at your ID. I mean, the, the process is, is as simple as showing us a card or a phone, a picture on your phone and confirming it against your identification. Um, over the weekend, though, prior to this, there was a really strange pushback where people were calling and threatening staff and saying they're going to follow them home. And I, we just report those things directly to the police because that's unacceptable and, and, and just crazy, right? I mean, you'd be yelling at a staff member who's just doing their job and following a province-wide 
legal order is just not productive. Yeah, is any of that kind of stuff happening? I mean, are these just sort of idle, idle, cowardly threats made anonymously online? Well, there's a fair bit of idle, cowardly threats for sure. Yeah. Uh, in a very small minority of cases, yeah, we, we have had some of those. I would say it's, you know, wow. maybe 5% of the interactions have gone that way. Um, well, you mean I, like people, people following bar staff oh, around? No, no, no that, that's not materialized as far as I know. I meant more okay. of the, the difficult interactions at the front where people are saying, you know, if you enforce this, I'm not coming in here. And we're saying, well, yeah. you're not going to go anywhere else instead, right? It's, uh, but but industry's really stepped up on this, and I think that they were bracing <laughs> for a huge amount of conflict, and there has been some, but uh, for the most part, British Columbians have been, been responsible and have had backs on this. Which have, you, have you heard of any bars or pubs that have had to call the cops? Yeah, there's been a few cases uh, throughout the province, and uh, sometimes it happens in more rural communities, right, where there's a larger percentage of the population that are unvaccinated. Um, and, you know, calling the police is sort of a, you know, a normal thing in our industry. It happens every once in a while when, when patrons perhaps have too much to drink or something and they, they don't want to leave. But um, in, in this case, it's been, you know, it's, it's a, we're, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that people are calming down and the rollout is going to continue to go well. Um, because it's difficult when you call the police in these situations, right? Which is why sometimes mm-hmm. we hire security instead, because then you're taking a police officer off the road and they keep dealing with a traffic accident or a more serious incident, and they can't always get there in a timely manner, and, and that's, that's understandable. Jeff, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about crime on the streets of Vancouver now, the break-ins, the vandalism, the assaults, the general mayhem on the streets of the city. We've been talking all this week with business owners and residents experiencing this rising tide of street crime. They've been pleading for help. And this response now from the Vancouver Police Department, this release, this is just out from the VPD. They just put out a release saying they're redeploying officers in the downtown core in response to commercial crime and disorder. The Vancouver Police Department immediately increasing the number of patrols to the hardest hit areas, especially Granville Street and the West End. Uh, The police department saying there will be more officers on foot patrol and officers on bicycles to increase street level police presence. They're working with business owners and residents uh, to address their concerns, including chronic offenders, chronic repeat offenders who are uh, doing a lot of these break-ins. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Julio Sachi on the line. Julio is president of Sachi and Sachi Fine Jewelry. Hi, Julio. Hi. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line is John Boychuk. John is the owner of of Davy Tan- Davy Village Tanning. John, thank you for coming on. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you to both of you for being here. Julio, let me go to you first. Where is Sachi Jewelry located? We are at 1105 Robson Street, corner of Robson and Thurlow, and we've been in that location for 33 years now. Wow, okay, that's awesome. What have you seen out there? Does the crime seem to be getting worse in the area, and have you experienced it at your store? It's it's changed severely from through these 33 years. The last year, I would say the last six months especially, but the last year and a half, two years, it's been aggressively, the crime has gone up. And it's it's not the same as it used to be. And it's not a good look for Vancouver locally and also for the tourism for Vancouver as well. Yeah, what did it used to be like? 
It, it was a very peaceful city. It was uh, being on Robson. It was like being on Beverly Hills almost. You know, people felt yeah. comfortable walking out after jewelry store with, you know, wearing large pieces, buying pieces. Now I have customers that when they purchase from me, they're scared to even carry the bag, and they're asking me if I have a bag with no logo on it. So, and mm. when you when they're walking out and they see these panhandlers standing outside. It's it's quite a bit of them, and the traffic, the the look of Robson, it's not what it used to be at all, and that's got to do with the city letting go of cleaning it up in terms of making it look better, taking care of the people that they need help rather than letting them out on the street and let them go up to people and do whatever they are pleased to do. Okay, do you? Is it just a question of your customers not feeling comfortable when they leave the store, or are you are you seeing any crime like in the store? Have you have you had any break-ins or damage? We do have quite a bit of damages. I mean, all we've got to do is just walk up and down Robson. You see, at least six or seven of stores that they, their windows has been hit and they have been broken into. There is a security line for Robson Street, what they call it, which it it does some help, but it's not much. And we constantly get that people are asking for help for, uh, you know, shoplifting and things like that, which it never was there. It was, there wasn't as much yeah. as uh, shoplifting. And the reason was because there was a lot of uncovers. There was a lot of police attendance. There was lots of police on bikes, as you, as you mentioned earlier, that they're doing again. There was a lot of those kind of things, and none of them exist anymore. As, for an example, the last Christmas, I had I had them come from from the VPD. They came and they gave us a sheet that if if we did have a shoplifting, rather than call nine one one, just go online, fill it up, and they'll get back to us within the forty eight oh. hours. Oh. I, mean, I mean, how can you deal with that? What's uh. the point of even doing that? You oh know? man! And police is doing the best they can because yeah. you know they're doing their job. Is the city that is not doing their job. Okay, let me go to John Boychuk, the owner of Davy Village Tanning. John, where is your business located? We're located in the heart of Davy Village, right between Thurlow and Burrard. And we've been there as a business for 35 years, and I've been involved wow. there for 24 of those years. Okay, awesome neighborhood. What has it been like lately? Lately? Uh, well, you know, crime is one thing. Safety is another. Uh, safety is always a concern for employees. Uh, I've got a lot of girls that work for me, uh, including my sister. And in the evenings, you know, we close earlier only because of the fewer number of individuals on the streets that are um, staying home. We talk to clients who have been coming to our business for decades that are now saying, I'm not coming in the evenings anymore because I'm terrified to walk down Davy Street. Yeah, literally terrified. And some have even stated, I've had it. I have been in this neighborhood. I have patronized this neighborhood. And it's time for me to get the hell out of this neighborhood because I see it just going straight downhill. And as a business, you know, to lose customers, that's hard. And then wow. not only that, but to have to continually put money out for the losses associated with the break-ins, it's one thing to have your window smashed once, twice, three times. I've had my windows broken four times in the last nine months, and one was out of a mental health issue. 
but the other were for theft. And in that theft, sure, it was a couple of grand the first time, you know, five grand the second time. Uh, where do we make up these losses? And then for the replacement of the glass, the insurance companies are like, okay, you hit once, great. Hit twice, hmm. three times, not insurable. So oh. at what point, you know, does these tens of thousands of dollars in losses in revenue that don't get to go back to the employees, they don't get to be put back into the businesses, they don't get get reinvested. Well, you know, that's money that's lost. And I understand that our community police office is doing a real good job when it comes to communicating that their hands are tied. And to hear this statement this morning, that they are going to be reallocating some of the individuals to come back downtown, that's great. But the other part of the problem is, is that a high number of those crimes are happening in the wee hours of the morning. And the perpetrators know that they can get away with almost anything between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. because there's a shift change and there's fewer officers on the streets. And that's when a lot of the break-ins are happening. Oh, man. So they know the officer shift changes. They know when to do the break-in. Exactly. Wow. Wow. You mentioned that you had trouble with your insurance company. You got to go back to them. Oh, I've been hit again. My windows have been smashed again. Like, have you got insurance? Are they refusing to insure you now? Well, I've been advised in my next policy, if I claim again, it's going to go up $2,000 for, for the next year. And yeah. it's like, well, what's the point? It's $1,000 to replace the plane of glass or $2,000 for my next policy uh, on the glass. It's, it's not worth it. it it's just Man. not. Because it becomes cost prohibitive. Yeah. Do they ever catch these guys? I mean, do you have, like, security cameras or anything like that? Well... The issue is, is because the crime is less than $10,000, it is just put up as a nuisance. And being a nuisance, there's very little manpower to be able to deal with it. Uh, we, we've had uh, individuals walk in to steal pretty much anything from employee cell phones that are left on a desk unattended, which is a oh. no-no, uh, to uh, literally groups of people walking in, grabbing merchandise, and out the door in seconds. And basically all we're told is that maybe it's time to look at increased security measures, take your merchandise out of your windows at night, put up some bars, put up some gates, and create Fort Knox. And it's like after 35 years of a business just being a little old tanning salon, providing a community service to individuals who just want to feel good, you don't want to walk into a prison. You don't want to have yeah. to worry about at the end of the night having to roll all your racks away. That you know a ten dollar bathing suit that's on clearance because somebody wants to steal it. You know it's 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 gotten to the point of sheer ridiculousness in how a business has to operate. Okay, uh, John, thank you for that, Julio. Let me go back to you real briefly. What do you think should be done? They should put more forces out there. The city should yeah. take the. <clears throat> take the people who are on these streets and doing these crimes a little bit more serious, not just a slap on the wrist. I've got video cameras. They got the guy on the face. I was told last uh, Saturday that passed that uh, they had the guy in custody. They know who it is and they're going for him and they're going to get him. It looks really great. But what's the point of getting one guy? Because he's probably paid very little amount to do this job. To, uh, for somebody else or just they're going to get a slap on the wrist 
and within 48 hours or maybe maximum two weeks he's out and he's doing yeah. the same thing again. Yeah, do you think, do you think, do you agree with that, John? Let me just go to John quickly on that. Do you think, like, a lot of these crimes and break-ins are being committed over and over again by the same people? I believe it is. They've picked out their targets. They know where their weaknesses are. They know what they need to bring. Um, Yesterday, the community police officers came around and said that they had taken off a major uh, perpetrator from the, the area who was witnessed by residents in a tower trying to break into a business off Davy and Thurlow with a hatchet and was unsuccessful in their first round. And so came back and were witnessed again, still trying to break in with their hatchet. The police attended. They were able to track the guy down, opened up his backpack, and he's got his hatchet. He's got a mallet that is wrapped up to be able to either use as a weapon against somebody or against the, the business break-in, as well as a handgun and a clip. Oh, wow. So, you know, yay, the person's taken off the street. But it took residents being active, not once but twice, to be able to point the police in the right direction. So thank okay. you to those residents for stepping up and recognizing that there was a crime going on. But when you have that level of engagement from uh, a criminal that is prepared to use that level of force? Is this what a small neighborhood is becoming? It's no wonder why residents are terrified. It's no wonder why business owners are saying, is it worthwhile staying? All right, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for coming on today and sharing your stories. I'm, I'm sorry that you and your businesses and your employees and your families are, are going through this. I don't think you should have to. Uh, we're going to continue to put pressure on the authorities to do something about it. I want to thank both of you for coming on today to talk about it. That's Julio Sachi, President Sachi and Sachi Fine Jewelry on Granville. John Boychuk, owner of Davy Village Tanning on Davy Street, uh, talking about the mayhem going on in their neighborhood. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the anti-old-growth logging blockade at Ferry Creek now. More than 1,000 arrests there now. It's police versus protesters every day at this site on Vancouver Island. Protesters trying to stop old-growth logging. Police enforcing a court injunction to let loggers go to work. More than 1,000 arrests at this site now. It is now the largest campaign of civil disobedience in Canadian history. The logging company involved here going back to court now. They are seeking an extension of the court injunction to allow the work to continue. The standoff, though, continuing as well. Let's discuss now with my guest, Bill Dumont. Bill is a professional forester, former chief forester for a major BC forest company, a former member of the BC Forest Practices Board. Bill, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, we're hoping to get Sapora Berman on the line as well, who's an environmental activist, and she's a major supporter and a key figure in in the blockades, and we're having a little trouble connecting with her right now, but we'll still try. Bill, let me uh, let me ask you about your thoughts on the, on the current situation in Ferry Creek, with especially over a thousand arrests there now. What does that number mean to you? That's a lot. That's a lot of people, but. I think we've got to look at the situation. This is an American-led protest that has been endowed with several million dollars of fundraising. In fact, the other day they hired three helicopters to bring in cement 
so that it would impede the RCMP from doing their job and enforcing the injunction. So this is a very sophisticated, uh, complex operation for the protesters who have been sort of making themselves out as fake victims. The, the victims here are the taxpayer, the RCMP, and the loggers who've been trying to get to work now and get bothered uh, for a whole year. And, you know, the, the whole idea that, uh, of stopping old-growth logging, uh, there's basically, we're talking billions, not millions, billions of dollars of impact. And about 25% of the current harvest in B.C. is old growth. So shutting it down isn't going to happen. There will be more reserves of old growth coming. That's clear. The government has made that statement. But this idea that protesters should be able to shut down a quarter of the B.C forest industry is ludicrous okay what do you think about the argument from the anti-old growth logging protesters and their lawyers in court here this one is in front of a judge once again as the logging company teal jones is seeking to extend the injunction order against the protesters in the area and the lawyers for the protesters are arguing that this is an existential crisis that we're facing as a planet right now it's called climate change and the judge should take that into consideration when deciding whether to approve this continuing injunction. That old growth, old growth trees are key to uh, preventing the warming of the planet and cutting them down just increases the risk of climate change. What do you think of that as a, as a legal argument as a guy who's been involved in these type of disputes for like a long time? Well, it's a novel idea, but like a lot of things out of Fairy Creek, it's a fairy tale. It's nonsense to suggest that there is somehow the sky is falling and things are going to happen with dire consequences if we continue the limited harvesting of old growth. It's, it's a silly argument, and I'm trusting the judge will just dismiss it as, as simply as that. It's silly. Okay. Okay, let me go to Sapora Berman now. Sapora is a longtime environmental activist and writer in British Columbia, and she supports the, the blockades there at Fair Creek. Fairy Creek. Sapora, thank you for coming on once again. Thanks for having me. Can, can you make the case here uh, for the continuing uh, protests that we're seeing on the ground in, in Fairy Creek and, and the court action that we're seeing in court right now? What are your thoughts on it? Well, the fact is that the scientists have made the case um, for several years now. We've had expert panels saying we need to protect the remaining high productivity old growth, that these forests are, are critical to maintain water systems, to maintain climate resiliency. Our world is changing very quickly, and these are some of the most resilient forests we have left. Some of the trees in these groves are over a thousand years old. I've walked them. These areas shouldn't be logged. That's what the scientists have said. And the government policy is taking too long to catch up. So I think these folks who are risking their freedom, who are living up there and trying to delay uh, the logging while the implementation is done of the science panel recommendations, which they support, look, they're not criminals, they're heroes. And this injunction should not be renewed. Uh, the logging in the remaining old growth should be deferred while the necessary uh, conversations go on with First Nations, not just in Ferry Creek, but across this province. Bill Dumont, what do you say to that? 
Well, it's nonsense to suggest there is this urgency. The number one recommendation from the committee, uh, the Gourley Committee, was that consultation with First Nations is absolutely key before any major changes are made to the current harvest regime in B.C. And in fact, uh, the Pachydat people are in agreement with that. I can't speak for them, but they've asked the protesters to get out of their territory. They've asked them many times, and both the hereditary and political elected leadership of that group have said, no, we want to wait, we want to do our own level of planning for protecting old growth, and uh, we don't need this daily harangue and protest and and fake victimhood of, of these protesters who, as I said, are led by an American, a, a young American kid with, who has access to a lot of money, high-priced lawyers. Look at the legal team that are representing them in the court action here. You can see these, these guys have got a lot of money uh, in, in, the, okay. in, the, in the game here. So uh, I, I don't can I- agree, agree with Sapporo, although we, in the past we have made many agreements, and we've resolved issues in the past. For some reason, and I think it's because of the American leadership here, there is an unwillingness of these protesters to sit down and look at the processes underway and resolve these issues. Okay, Sapporo. Okay, a couple of things here. First of all, the first and most important recommendations of the expert panel was to defer logging in the at-risk high-productivity old growth. The valleys That's not that true. The first are... thing was to consult with First Nations. Hang, on, Hang on, Bill. Hang on, Bill. Let her finish there. Go ahead. So folks can read it for themselves. The government has put the expert panel report online. And recommendation six says defer logging so that these conversations can go on. The deferrals to date have not been in all the areas the expert panel recommended. And in fact, the scientists themselves put out press releases saying this isn't good enough and you need to stop logging in the, in the critical at-risk areas. Second of all, the idea that this is a movement that's run by folks in the U.S. is just industry baffle gab to try and turn people against the protesters. Go up there for, the, for yourselves. There are a thousand people who have been arrested in Ferry Creek. There are construction workers. There are teachers, professors, scientists. The far majority of them are Canadian. The far majority of them are British Columbian. And the idea that this is a really well-funded, the only reason there is money is because individual British Columbians have been responding to their GoFundMe. There's no big organization in Ferry Creek. I've never seen such a diverse volunteer-run effort in my life that is, if there's any coordination... Helicopters $1,000 an hour or more, even 2000 They hired three of them the other day to fly in cement to stop the police. So don't tell me that there isn't a lot of well-funded support here. What about what about those helicopters, Sapporo? I mean, that's kind of astonishing that helicopters are flying in there and dropping in supplies behind the lines to, to protesters. Who's paying for that? That's the, that's the first I've heard of that. And, and if it is, if there are individuals of means who are helping bring in supplies to those folks who are standing in the way of the logging of some of our last thousand-year-old trees, then we should be thanking them. I thank them for doing that. But the idea that there's some big organizations back there with big money doing these protests is absurd. You can see it for yourself. Go there. Look at who's there. We have. I've been there, and it's not an absurd issue. This is a highly orchestrated 
protest movement that is demonizing the RCMP, the local indigenous people who don't agree with stopping logging, and the poor working stiff, the logger, who's been trying to get to work for over a year, and every day he's confronted by all these protesters who are just behaving badly. I mean, there's lawlessness there. We've had drug overdose deaths. We've had all sorts of violence. We've had littering on the site. And and they make themselves out as the victim that the RCMP are treating them badly. Well, these people are standing up against a legal order that Teal Jones has. Look, there's going to be anarchy if these this type of behavior continues. Sapara. It's not the way to resolve resource issues in British Columbia. Sapara, go ahead. Can I get a word in here? Um, There has been violence in Ferry Creek, but it's not on behalf. It's not from the land defender's side. We, you can see the video for yourselves. The police have been using unnecessary force, especially, quite frankly, against young Indigenous women. And, and the fact is that there are oh, now that, 90 complaints. Can I finish, Bill? There are 90 complaints now to the RCMP about violence. And, and I, I think Bill is right that the forestry workers have been put in an untenable position and our hearts go out to them and their families because they should be working in a sustainable industry. They shouldn't be put in the middle of this and they should have job security. But they don't right now because we have continued to log old growth at paces that are unsustainable to not diversify the industry. So we create secondary okay. products. We're getting okay. less trees per tree cut than almost any place in the world. All right. Welcome back. Let's continue discussing the anti-old growth logging blockades at Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island. Now more than a thousand arrests at this site now with my guests, Sapora Berman and Bill Dumont. Uh, Bill, just before the break, Sapora was talking about some of the police conduct at the site of the blockades. There have been many, many police uh, complaints to authorities about police conduct. Uh, what do you think about, do you think the police have conducted themselves properly there at this, at the site? Absolutely. They have responded when they've been violently attacked by the protesters. And uh, you you saw the other day, uh, one of the uh, older RCMP officers was pushed and and got a concussion as he hit his head. He was taken away in an ambulance. So the idea that they've, uh, you know, nobody buys this nonsense that the RCMP are out to to throttle these people. They, they're doing their job. It's a difficult job of having to deal with these protests night and day, and it's gone on for months. I mean, it's, it's anarchy ruling out there, and that, that's ridiculous. Sapporo. There's not yeah. going to be so, a shutdown of old-growth logging mm-hmm. in B.C., but there are areas that, of old-growth that still remain unprotected from a lot of decisions made in the 1990s, and those changes are going to be made. For example, over 90% of the Ferry Creek watershed is already off-limit, mostly due to concern over a seabird. And that's the vast majority of old growth in southern Vancouver Island is already in a protected state. Within 10 minutes of Mike, Ferry Creek... Mike, if you Creek, want us to have a discussion, you're going to... Hey, okay, let, let, me ju- let me jump in there, Bill, in the interest of time, which is running out. Go ahead, Sapora. So what we've seen relative to the RCMP um, uh, excessive use of violence is a hundred formal complaints. The idea that there have been RCMP attacked is absurd. These are nonviolent 
protesters. They are individuals. <laughs> they are teachers and scientists and students and, and indigenous leaders. And, and the, quite frankly, there's been an excessive use of force. These are people who are unarmed, who are literally just sitting on a logging road. They've and, been armed with species and urine that they use to throw at the RCMP. Maybe that's unarmed from a, from a, a, a bullet hang point of view, but so they've been I throwing species and yeah. urine on these cops. Okay, that's hang on, hang on, Bill. Go ahead, Sapporo. That's absurd. So what we know right now is that the police violence has led to at least 12 hospital visits. There have been some protesters with broken wrists, with broken ribs. There's video of a young indigenous woman being dragged by her hair. And I think we have to ask ourselves, why would RCMP be dragging a woman by their hair? Why not pick them up? Why not put them on a tarp? And, and so I, I think, I think the, the fact is, the one thing Mel and I agree on is this shouldn't be happening. But I think what we're seeing is uh, a lack of uh, a failure of government leadership to address this issue in a timely way. And now there is a huge sense of urgency. And I, and I get that change is difficult, but the fact is there is very little big-treed old growth left in this province, and I think that British Columbians... That's absolutely nonsense. In in Carmana Park, which is less than 10 minutes away from Ferry Creek, is some of Canada's largest and oldest trees. They were protected in the 1990s from some of yeah. the work that you did yourself, so Sabora, you know. Pacific Rim National Park was yeah. also taken out of this TFL and made into a national park, and it also contains huge areas of large trees, and they're protected forever. Okay. And that's so true Bill, for a lot so of Bill, the old growth in B.C. Wait. It's off-limits from the forest industry. Okay, and go ahead, Sapporo. Is, is simply wrong. Go ahead, Sapporo. We only have one minute left, so uh, Sapporo, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, and I'll give Bill 30 seconds. We wrap it up here. Go ahead, Sapporo. The fact is that the scientists have told us in their reports that big old-growth tree sands are found in, on less than 1% of the forested land base in B.C. Most of that is still unprotected. They're calling for it to be protected. They're calling for the logging to be deferred. When people, citizens, stand up today in Ferry Creek and try and stop this logging, they're standing up with the support of those scientists from across the province who are asking the province to defer old-growth logging in all of those areas so that we can decide and we can work with First okay. Nations to see what should happen in this province. And that hasn't been happening. So those people are not criminals. They're heroes. Bill, you get 30 seconds. Well, the judge will determine whether they're criminals or not. More than 120 bands and indigenous companies work in the forest sector. They are. That's what's different between now and the past war in the woods that everybody talks about. First Nations have a major say in what happens in their territory. And that's going to be, they will be the deciding okay. group about what happens with old growth and old growth logging. Thank you. And thank so, you to both uh, of you. Thank you to Brad, Brad Time, Bill. Thank you to both of you, though. I'm really grateful to both of you being here. Bill Dumont, Sapora Berman. I know I got feisty at times. All right, welcome back to the show. Are you a cyclist? Do you ride your bike in traffic? Let's talk about one of the more dangerous hazards for cyclists out there, dooring. Yes, dooring. When a driver or a passenger in a vehicle opens the door, hits a passing cyclist. Are you a driver? Are you aware of this hazard? You've got to be super careful. You open that door. You've got to check and double check. Make sure there's no bike coming. The Fraser Health Authority now has a new safety campaign on this, urging drivers to be more careful 
so we can avoid dooring hazards and accidents. Let's check in now with Kyla Lee, lawyer for Acumen Law. She has a specialty in driving law. Hi, Kyla. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Thanks a lot for being here. Right now in British Columbia, dooring, if you open your door dangerously, you hit a cyclist. That's illegal, right? And they recent didn't they recently jack up the fine for that? They did. The fine yeah. increased from uh, $87, I think, to $368. Yeah, 368 bucks if you open your door. What, what, how, is the, how is that law applied? you have to open your door in like a dangerous or if you just you have to, you have to hit a cyclist or come close to a cyclist? How does it work? You don't have to hit or come close to a cyclist. It just requires opening the door when it's unsafe. So even if there's a pedestrian or uh, a person uh, driving another car by, uh, anything like that, if it's unsafe to open your door in the moment that you do it, then you can be ticketed and fined 368 bucks. Okay, the Fraser Health Authority now saying that they have concerns about this particular hazard. Here's Dr. Emily Newhouse, who's the medical health officer at Fraser Health, talking about dooring. We know from a couple years ago that ICBC reported that about 1 in 14 cyclist car crashes were a dooring crash. Those injuries can be very, very serious. Oh, wow, 1 in 14. That's an interesting stat. Does that surprise you at all, Kyla? It doesn't surprise me because if you think about what cyclists are doing on the road and when they're most likely to have an actual contact with a car, uh, it is in that situation where somebody's opening their door where they haven't looked uh, and made sure that the way is clear. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you've got to you've got to be so careful. You've got to double check. And I know I know in my in my case, I always am so cautious about this. The Fraser Health Authority is now promoting a system known as the Dutch Reach, the Dutch Reach, and this was developed in the Netherlands, where cycling, of course, very popular, and Fraser Health saying this is a way for drivers to prevent this type of adoring hazard. So you basically use, use your opposite hand to open the door. So you use your hand furthest away from the door to open the door, for, forcing your body to kind of twist around, and then you can check what's coming at you. Have a listen to this. This is uh, the public service announcement on this from Fraser Health. Have a listen, and then I'll get your thoughts, Kyla. Using my furthest hand to open the door, forcing me to turn my body, which lets me see what's coming up behind me. Just think. Using my furthest hand and turning my whole body, doing the Dutch reach, I can see traffic, joggers, cyclists all vulnerable road users it's so easy and very smart exactly exactly okay okay so that's the public service announcement there from fraser health on the dutch reach okay so kyla so the way this works is you use your hand that's furthest away from the door so let's say you're in the driver's seat so you'd use your right hand to twist around and open the door right and it's actually, I think, quite intuitive for the majority of road uh, users and the majority of drivers because most people, of course, are right-handed. And so to use your dominant hand, it's easy to train your body to do that if you're right-handed. Okay, you know, it is an interesting kind of concept. Uh, so I guess what it means is, it, how does it work, though? It sort of forces your body to basically twist around so you're looking over your shoulder. 
Exactly. Right. It forces yeah. your body to twist around so you're looking your, over your shoulder. You also get a better range of view from the rear view mirror because you're, you're getting a different perspective from the mirror. So you're better able to see what's coming up immediately behind you when you're opening the door. And it serves as a physical reminder when you feel the action of your body twisting. It serves as a physical reminder to turn your head over your shoulder and glance and do that shoulder check before opening the door. Right. So Fraser Health now outlining a series of steps here. Uh, and <laughs> some of this stuff does seem a little common sense or intuitive like you said but you know check your mirrors first then do that dutch reach so use your right hand if you're in the driver's seat and open the door with your right hand twist forcing your body to twist around look over your shoulder uh, see if there's any anyone coming towards you other road users a cyclist coming at you then you open the door crack just a little bit few inches take a look out the door just be super careful, I guess, is what they're saying. But using that Dutch reach is an inter- interesting one. Do you, does this is this a public campaign that you can get behind, Kyla? Do you think this makes sense? It makes perfect sense to me. Okay. And a lot of people don't even know this, but the not opening your door, um, uh, or sorry, not shoulder checking before opening your door is an automatic fail on your road test. So it's something mm. that we should all be doing anyway. Yeah, for sure. And y- you can just imagine that you know opening a door and hitting a cyclist. I mean, you're talking about a potentially catastrophic uh, accident or injury there, and nobody wants to see that. You mentioned earlier that there is a heavy fine for dooring. How much was that fine again, Kyla? $368, but no points. $368, but no points. Okay, have a listen to this. This is Navdeep Sheena from the Hub Cycling Association making the argument that maybe that fine should be even higher. Have a listen. Increasing fines, uh, it's a positive step forward, but it still is not the solution. What we really need is safe cycling infrastructure so that we get rid of this conflict between both people cycling and people driving. Okay, so he says the fine okay, is, is not enough. We need more cycling infrastructure to keep cyclists safe. I guess that means more bike lanes. Kyla, your thoughts? Want, yeah bike lanes, um, more uh, road features that protect cyclists, and, and ultimately really fewer cars on the road is, is the thinking, to encourage more people to get on their bicycles or to use public transit because that's going to make it safer. I'm not sure necessarily how easy it's going to be at this point to transition into that um, because we've made a lot of decisions about where we've put buildings and where we've put parking and where we've put things uh, in our downtown cores of our major cities uh, that are based on sort of the lack of cycling. Um, it would be a massive undertaking to get the amount of cycling infrastructure that's necessary to address all of those safety concerns. Right. And what about that dooring fine? Do you think that's in about the right neighborhood for that offense or do you think it's too high, too low? I think it's too high because the the offense captures a broad range of conduct, including situations where you don't cause any harm to anybody um, and where it's just, you know, mildly unsafe. Um, I think the fine being so high, it's it's consistent with the fine for excessive speeding or distracted driving, which are much more dangerous than uh, the dooring issue uh, on the whole. Um, I would like to see penalty points at it because that's where I think we see more change in people's behavior is the idea that you could potentially lose your license for not doing something as opposed to just having to pay money. Let's say a police officer sees you open your, your car door without checking over your shoulder. Is that an offense right there? Like even if a, even if a bike is not even coming at you? It's possible. It's certainly arguable that that would be an offense, um, that it's unsafe to do it without shoulder checking. Although I think there would be a defense in the fact that there was no actual hazard.
Yeah. Okay. Here's what I want to do right now, Kyla. Take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this more. My guest is Kyla Lee, Acumen Law. Now let's open the phone lines on this. Do cyclists need, what do you think about this fine? First of all, do you think the fine is high enough? Should it be more? Do you agree with Kyla? Maybe there should be some penalty points on there for dooring. What about this hazard for dooring? If you are a cyclist, I'd love to hear from you. Do you see this happen a lot? Has it ever happened to you? Call me. Tell me your story. If you are a driver, do you do that shoulder check when you open your vehicle in traffic? Make sure there's no bike coming alongside you. What about that Dutch reach? You willing to take the time to do that? Use your opposite hand to open the door, forcing your body to twist around so you do that shoulder check. Does that make sense to you? Will you try it? Will you do it? What about cyclists? How much responsibility do they have? Do they need to be more careful on the roads? Phone me and tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Kyla Lee is my guest. This is Mike Smith. Back with your calls. All right, welcome back. Kyla Lee is my guest talking about Doring. Ton of calls here. Let's get right to them. Alex and Delta, hi. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm good. Go ahead. Um, have you ever heard something about Australia about reaching? Have you ever heard that reaching? No, tell me. Okay, pretend you're sitting in your chair, pretend you're in the car. Instead of opening the door with your left hand, reach over and grab your right hand and open the door because it makes your body turn and makes your head turn left and does a shoulder check at the same time. Yeah, well, that's, per- that's per- precisely right exactly what we're talking about. So it sounds like it was a thing in Australia too, Kyla. Yes, I think lots of uh, places in the world are adopting this just because of the yeah. inherent uh, safety. Let's go to um, issue that. Let's go to Rob in New West. Hey, Rob. Hey there. I, I don't really have a problem with the fines and all that. I, I'm not a cyclist, but I used to be a motorcyclist, so I understand what happens when a door gets in, in the way. But one of the things that I'm concerned with is I think a complete lack of thinking on the part of engineering departments that put these bike lanes in place. Why they don't put a checkered pattern beside where a parked car would be and then put a bike lane like two feet farther out. And it's even worse in the few places where there's now a bike lane on the passenger side, where behaviors of passengers is very, very different and takes a long time to learn a new behavior as to look over your shoulder on the passenger side. Okay. When the overwhelming majority of bike lanes are on the driver's side. Kyla, what do you think of the design, the bike lane designs we're seeing? I I think the the separated bike lanes are the most uh, safe separated bike lanes. I don't agree with putting them on the passenger side because, first of all, our legislation in BC requires cyclists to be riding on the same with the same flow of traffic. Um, And I think it also, when the bike lanes ends, exposes cyclists to a greater risk at that point in time. Let's go to Lawrence calling from Marpole. Hi, Lawrence. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Quick question. Years ago, I got a ticket. Because I broke a city bylaw, uh, traffic bylaw, by opening my driver's side door onto a main thoroughfare. This was Hastings Street. Is that bylaw still in effect? You can't open your door on a major thoroughfare. You have to go out this passenger side door. What? Really? What? Kyla, do you know? Uh, I don't know anything about that, no. <laughs> I doubt it. Like, what? You mean you'd have to get out? The driver would have to get out the passenger side? No, that that I've no. never heard of anything like that, and I don't recall reading that in any of the times I've read the motor. No, I don't. Part. I don't think so. I don't think so. J D in White Rock. Hi. 
Hey, yeah, uh, I'm just cruising the beach in White Rock. Yeah, I see <laughs> cyclists doing stuff all the time, dude. Like, uh, cops in front of cops, and they don't do anything. Like, they run red lights, and they, they do stuff. And, yeah, there should be points to, uh, if you door somebody, you got to look over your shoulder. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, okay. All right. Kyla, so, I don't know, like... Uh, you know, I hear this a lot. Like, you know, what about the bad cyclist behavior out there? How come they never get stopped by the cops? I mean, in your experience, I mean, you can still get a tyke, you can still get a ticket from a cop if you break the law as a cyclist, right? Yes. In fact, any of the Motor Vehicle Act rules that apply to cars, except with some specific exceptions, also apply to cyclists. So, if you're on your bike and you're breaking the law, you're liable to get a ticket. It just doesn't seem to happen as often as with cars. Um, yeah. And one of the, the big problems with that is it's difficult to identify and enforce the rules against cyclists. Why is that? Because uh, it's much more difficult for police officers to identify who is driving a bike because if they don't stop or if they're called in and the police officer doesn't see them, there's no license plate, there's no insurance, there's no way to track down who was actually on that bicycle. Yeah, it's easy enough, though, to ticket someone for not wearing a helmet. I mean, we still continue to see that fairly frequently, and I'm not sure how many tickets get written up for a cyclist not wearing a helmet. Maybe it should be more often. I, I would like to see it happen more often because yeah. I think the helmets are a big public safety issue. We all pay the same, you know, the same tax dollars to support our health system. And so, right. you know, if cyclists are costing money as a result of not wearing the helmets, I'd like to see them ticketed. Yeah, I agree. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Dennis in Nanaimo, hi. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? I... I've got a bit of an issue here. I live in Nanaimo, of course, and uh, uh, I've been to Vancouver hundreds of times, and I've seen lots of it where these bicycles ride on sidewalks, and then they pop out between cars, and, and they try to race in front of the cars like they're going faster than the flow of traffic. Now, <laughs> they don't have any insurance, for one thing. They're, they're d driving these you know, expensive bikes and, and their designer clothes and whatnot, and uh, they have no insurance at all. Okay, what is the fine, Kyla, if you know, for riding your bike on the sidewalk? Um, I don't know, but uh, based on the sort of pattern of fines in the Motor Vehicle Act, I would suspect it's around $109. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm just doing a quick Google search on it. It says in Victoria, a $100 fine for riding on, on the sidewalk. It's another one. I'm not sure how often that's enforced. Gail in North Van, hi. To know if there is a fine or anything for dooring a pedestrian a passenger in a car uh took me out the first time i said well you know stuff happens maybe you'll be more careful the second time she was her, they were parked further on up the block but the second time she opened the door she took out my dog and wow. my dog was hurt i would like to know if there's any kind of i have the license plate number because the second time i was a little choked well, was it, the, it wasn't the same driver, though, both times, was it? Or I was didn't it? I didn't know the oh. driver, but it was the same passenger. Really? Wow. Wow. Yes. Okay, did you phone the police? I did not. Okay. Kyla, what do you think of that? Well, you can report, even if it was the passenger door, and even if you don't know that it was the same individual, the Motor Vehicle Act makes an owner of a vehicle liable for anything that's done with the vehicle. So if the passenger in a vehicle uh, was opening the door unsafely, the, t the owner can be ticketed um, under the Motor Vehicle Act. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. 
I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.